Act 5, Scene 5. We stand at the river on which Faustus will take his final journey. In the beginning, we are presented with the clumsy illusion for the appearance of travel, confined to the limitations of a stage. Eventually, the limits and boundaries of illusion will be defied. For the moment, as he travels, the scenery will change by the medium of moving stagecraft, as in an old-fashioned vaudeville. Scenery will glide behind him, as it were the bank of the river, while Faustus remains stationary to the center of the stage. At the river's shore, an officer, a Macedonian whom he knew, gave instructions to the crew. He treated Faustus with disdain. Faustus collected all his books, gathered notes, and went aboard. Two ships slipped quickly away, wrongly borne, turned seaward, until they could mount their oars. They groaned against high waves which splayed and splashed them and overcame by force the force which carried them toward the sea. In daylight, when winds prevailed, they raised the wide white sails to aid endeavor, and bursting, broke the surging river, bested it, and so at intervals went to rest. But when the night returned and winds respite, they had to set to row at oars again, while restless, the river thrashed, unbeaten. For days they journeyed, in well-known lands, along plains that men had plowed for cultivation, where women laundered and children played and cattle grazed or drank, elephants bathed in dust or rolled in muddy sinks at the riverside. The crew did not complain, although none knew where they went, except the captain, who studied Faustus' intent, who, rifling his belongings when he was not looking, sought to know what he had written. For Faustus' habit as historian persisted in personal journaling, recording his adventure, his quest, his craving to know. At the threshold of my death, he wrote, what will I behold? Will I see that life is illusion? Is this all I am, no more? Or dying will I understand? Will I suddenly see what's true? But then, who will ever know? For dying whatever is known, whatever wisdom dying gains, I will die and know nothing more. Or is that story told, which many do believe, the fact of things? That I find when I die that I awaken to the penalty of my life. Will I face a judgment for what I've done? Will I find my life a waste? 
And I am lost, alone, unloved, and helpless. What is this place I'm seeking? Is it real? Or am I insane? None of this model and philosophy the lieutenant might have guessed, because for him the question of life is answered by tests. What is wanted are deeds. What's done is by need. Books, words, thinking do not satisfy or meet immediate necessity. So why pursue them? Therefore what Faustus wrote must be diabolic, not philosophical. These notes are secrets. They must be missives to the enemy porous. At fourteen days, or when the moon was full at night, risen at the middle of the course, Ahead they saw a smoke obscure its orb, swollen in it, and heard the horror of fire, a ravaging roar, but unseen. No glaring flames appeared, only the monstrous moon which bled across the blear of smoldering river. And as he had been forewarned, the Macedonian took to shore the current too terrible to bear. Before the dawn, they launched, obedient to Dondame's advice. The wind rose up at sunrise to help, but waters, angered, began to pitch destructively. The sun illumined sky beyond while glowered mists before. Only after the sun had risen almost mid-morning had they exhausted understood. They had made no progress and realized that they stood within the pall of a looming cliff over which the river thundered and plunged. This was not fire. It was the catastrophe of water, a deluge that spread the atoms of its collision across its chaos with spray so fine, so very dense, it quenched the air like smoke. The river heaved so massively below its avalanche that no gain could be made. Rowing or sailing was stalemate. They put to shore within the cloud, yet still a distance of many miles. While the Macedonian consulted the map of Eden he'd kept hidden at his breast, his men, in quiet gloat, believed it certain they would turn, slept, or mended sails, drank, and ate. One ship, the officer announced, would stay, abiding them, while one would be taken above these falls to be hauled by all together, though only a third continue. The men did not refuse. Faustus wondered how they should acquiesce to command, while he resented any rule he did not understand. The ship was roughly handled, defying fitful forces. 
its bulk and weight, wild winds, torrents sweeping over them in drenching sheets, roaring war on them. Careening, foundering in the wind, it thrashed and lost, flung loose, was tossed and crashed. Precariously dangling on faltering ropes, plummeted, whence three men plunged to death, striking the rock in helpless tumbling and smashing. But no one flinched, and no one mourned, but desperate for survival went on about their tasks with grim-set destiny to chore the ship to the ethereal high plain. And as their fears subsided, as the apex neared, they were curious for what they might discover. For they, like Alexander, climbed each mountain that they might see what the next one might gain. At that peak, where Faustus had gone ahead alone, he saw a forest never taken by any man, dense and lofty. And beyond the mouth of the river falls, it was as placid as a pond, a wide, watery plateau, where lilies were afloat, even nearing the edge, which plummeted two thousand feet. The ship was dragged to the water before the moon was risen, the majority in a hurry to descend, for they heard sounds of a night they did not know left the few who stayed, the captain, Faustus, and ten, who were also eager to cast away and quickly put the shore behind them. No one looked at those departing. No one said farewell. They set immediately to rowing and found the current easy. A moonlit night was peacefully spent at a placid anchor. The river seemed content to rest, no longer their enemy. When the sun arose, while the crew and captain slept, suspended in a common dream in which they all appeared, except for Faustus, who watched the diving waterfowl feed. Faustus took notes of this sketched flora and fauna scene, the likes of which he did not know, and gave each names. Once awakened mildly by the slanting light upon their eyelids, they ate in silence. In silence lifted anchorage and dipped oars into silent glassy water and glided in a straight, smooth course. They steered tween islands, outcrops of the pinnacled rock which towered here and there in mid-course of the river, like weathered ruins of great towers thrust high on rock, castellated and structured as with dwellings and gates, as with hidden towns, 
At its top the rock seemed flat as by excavation, and he thought he saw furtive figures and faces peek more often than once and not imagined. Some aisles resembled gradually the old cathedrals he had seen, the spires gothic, the coves vaulted, and balustrades of ornate fretwork, intricate carvings of ornamental creatures peeking out from vine and leaf, saints and monsters adorning cornices and pedestaled over gaping dim arches. What space was secreted behind these sealed doors? A coven, a congregation of dead, of those lost souls who linger half lost. These islands were all holy shrines, and within them certainly the relics of mystery, goodness, and beauty had been laid, abiding them as the night abides, as the infinite abides us, each within us, each like an emptiness but complete, entire, and fulfilled. On thirty days, or sometime after the moon was new, when no moon shone at night, all night, at dawn, he was the only one awake, who saw the bird alight, the slender railing of the ship. It had a human face. It was a face he knew, as if the person who had died had passed into this body incomplete. It could no longer speak the language that it knew, but looked at Faustus sadly, mute. Until it flew with a cry, a pitiful sob, he recalled. It was his mother's soul he thought he saw fly. Faustus wrote this observation. This and other things that were similarly strange to see in his personal diary, which he locked in his treasury. One day, towards journey's end, he found the captain had taken his key whilst he slept and had opened it. He did not say a word as it was read, but Faustus wrote no more then. The passing river widened as the days passed, and it seemed they wandered in an archipelago upon flat water, which had neither source nor destiny. Sailing or rowing gently in confusion amongst castellated isles which were so numerous they lost apparent current, and were uncertain of their bearings, but that the captain recalling Dondame's words 
viewed the map in starlight and called out direction for our steersmen to be guided by configurations of the sky. The islands strange became stranger in night, as if by inspiration of the dark and lure of shapeless shadows. Spires spouted, arches and caves swelled. The vague stone grew in the conniving invisibility, and at the dawn what had been blank and dull had changed to vegetal forms. Leaf-enveloped vines complexly tangled, raw and ripened fruits, stone, but living stone, or living forms turned to stone, which by its continuous dependency upon its minerals, as anything dependent, becomes the other that it needs. He saw how they had changed from grays to luscious greens, to burnished shades, to gleam as gems, red, yellow, or clear, and show translucence as a glass, from rock to flesh, or flesh to jewel. And he wondered if all living here would all eventually acquire approximation of permanence. Is this legendary, undying afterlife? To become a living semblance? But surely even stones erode, rinsed merely by waters, rinsed merely by waters, struck softly by the air, they too will disappear. So, they knew full moon would come again, rising at supposed river's head, although it was not a narrow, but an expanse, which seemed as wide as the horizon, so endless. Again the full moon blood red before their bow, again the fireless smoke and frightful thundering of an enormous avalanche of river crashed on them, foretold the final obstacle to paradise, which none believed could be overcome. This one higher and infinite in breadth, when they put to shore, they were so overcast by it, it was a dismal cavern, and they all shivered in the cold and drenching rain. The map held by the captain was ruined in wet clothes. He cast it to the river and was prepared for his defeat. But Faustus declared he'd go alone. 
This could not be, so the captain decided by lots who'd go, who'd he leave. Three men were picked, while the others who remained would sail down to a clearing in the trees and encamp. The five final chosen ones began their dangerous climb, to go beyond the falls and at that height to claim paradise. Thank you.